Thanks, Isaac. First Peter is where we're going to be. We've been in the book of Genesis, and so uh, you may want to go ahead and start flipping there, try to find it. Uh, it's not the other end of the scriptures. We're just going to cover two verses today, and it's going to take us, uh, you may be thinking two verses, Woo! just wait. Uh, there's a lot in these verses and a lot in these passages. And I want to say, I'm going to preach today out of the, a different translation than I normally do. This is the CSB. We'll try it. We'll see how it feels. Uh, Aaron was pretty abrasive in the parent seminar that we were doing, the parent class, and, and demanded. And so we'll see. Um, I want to go ahead and pray, and then we will just dive into this passage in this text like we typically do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we get to uh, gather here that we get to hear your word, that we get to read scripture, that we get to pray, that we get to sing together, that our faith, God, you save us to yourself, but you also save us to one another, to brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're not meant to walk alone. We're not, not meant to do life by ourselves. We're meant to do it together in churches. God, I thank you for Genesis and for the years and a year and a half that we spent there. And I'm grateful, God, that you have other books of the Bible that we get to dive into now. And we're going to start with 1 Peter. I pray, God, as we read this text and we encounter some, some deep and some difficult theology just in these first two uh, verses, that you would draw our hearts to you, that you would help us to glorify you, and that we would grow in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and just read uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll come back to them. There's just two verses, but I want to just kind of show you this text as we begin talking about this book of the Bible. So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, through the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedient, to be obedient and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Like I said, nothing difficult in there at all. <laughs> we start with the Apostle Peter, who's the author of this letter. Peter wrote this letter later on in his life. Uh, if you know history, you know that in 64 A.D., Nero, who is emperor of the Roman Empire, um, an event happens where Rome catches on fire. And there's a lot of scholars who believe that Emperor Nero was the one who lit the fire to do this. But what he does is he blames Christians. And so this massive persecution uh, breaks out against Christians after A.D. 64. And it is probably after A.D. 64, in the midst of that persecution, that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were both killed. Church history tells us that Peter, when he died, it's not biblical history, it's church history, but when he died, that he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't think it was honorable to be crucified right side up like his Savior Jesus was. Uh, church history tells us that he had to watch his wife be crucified before he was crucified. But we also know Peter. If you've read the Bible, Peter's the, the kind of lead apostle, and, and uh, a pastor calls him the, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. And I get it. I relate to Peter well. Peter would say 
great things about God, and then right afterwards, he would just say some of the dumbest things and, and be rebuked. There's one time when Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're Moses, and some say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're a great prophet. And Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And it's Peter that stands up and he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, on that rock, that nugget of truth that you said, I'm going to build my church. And then the next story we have in Scripture is Jesus saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and in three days I'll rise from the dead. But I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed, and then I'll rise from the dead in three days. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and goes, Jesus, listen, you're not going to do that. We're not going to let you. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Like, those are two extremes, and that's kind of the life that Peter lives in. We also see in the garden at Gethsemane, after the Last Supper, Jesus is one of the three apostles who's with Jesus in the garden. Jesus looks at Peter, James, and John, and he says, stay awake and pray for me. They don't. They fall asleep repeatedly over and over, and then finally Judas, with this small army of people, come to take Jesus, and Peter whips out a sword and begins just swinging it. It's one sword versus an army. And what we learn about Peter is Peter and I could be hunting buddies because he's not accurate. He cuts off a guard's ear. He was not aiming for the ear. If he was aiming for the head or the neck, he's kind of accurate. If he wasn't, then it's just Peter wildly swinging a sword, trying to just fight for Jesus in this last moment. There's something honorable about that. There's something noble about that. Just willingly taking a sword to an army to buy yourself to try to defeat these guys. Jesus heals the guy with his ear. It doesn't stop him from arresting him. They take him back there. And it's that same night, hours later, that, G- that Peter denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. That's Peter. Just this up and down lifestyle. And then we hear the end of Peter's life. Being crucified upside down. Like the Lord got a hold of Peter. And so this letter is, is probably written before that fire that Nero set. So it's, it's towards the end of Peter's life. He's, he's in Rome. At the end of the book, he calls it Babylon because it's being uh, this oppressive empire, just kind of like Babylon was with the Old Testament. And a lot of what Peter's doing in this book is he's not writing it to one church. He's writing it to a bunch of churches that are scattered. And so what he's saying is, Right now, at the moment he's writing 1 Peter, there's not this persecution that's been instituted by the government. The government does not have rules against being a Christian, but it sure looks like it's coming. There's some social pressure, but there's not physical pressure. And so Peter's writing to this group of people to bring them hope for what a lot of them is going to end in their death because they're Christians. Peter says, I'm an apostle. I've I've walked with Jesus. He wrote 1 Peter, he wrote 2 Peter, and the gospel of Mark was Peter's words that Mark pinned down for him. And so then we, we keep moving on. So Peter, an apostle to Jesus, to those chosen living in exiles and dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithyni. All of those places are located in modern day Turkey. Uh, If you kind of know where that is, most likely the way these are written, at the end of the book, we see this this character shows up named Sylvanius who says he dictated it. So probably what happened was Peter penned this letter to those churches, and then Sylvanius, maybe even Silas, just his longer full name, uh, takes these and he distributes them to these churches, probably in the order that they're written. 
And so what they would do is, is he would take the letters to the church. The church would have them in that central location. They would copy the letter, and then they would disperse it to a bunch of the smaller churches around them. And then Sylvanius would take the letter and move to the next town. And he would do the same thing for all of these churches that were around there. If we look at the congregations of those churches, they're, they're mixed. You have Gentiles and we have Jews that are in both of them. And there's this huge debate, and it took me way too long this week to kind of to decipher through what was going on here on, on the makeup of these congregations. But, but basically what it comes down to is most likely most of the places that this was written to were not Jewish people, but rather Gentiles with some Jewish believers that were thrown in the congregation. we'll see that, that, that what Peter's getting at is, is the local church is really important. That's one of the themes of this letter. And then we see a word that we like or we don't like. The CSB translates it chosen. The ESV says elect. Your Bible may say something else like that. So let's walk through this and kind of make sure we grasp what Peter's saying and what's going on here. What he's doing is he's telling these Gentile congregations, he's tying them up with the Old Testament churches. We just walked through Genesis, and we saw that God chooses a man, Abraham, and he walks with Abraham and his family, and he has this chosen people of God. And so what Peter is saying is even though you're Jewish people, you've now been grafted into this chosen family of God. It's a biblical word. Election is a biblical word. Chosen is a biblical word. We need to understand the meaning. And basically what we're saying is this is how God saves us. He's sovereign over all of life. Salvation in the Bible is always credited to God. There's not one instance where somebody is saved, and in the Bible it gives them credit for it. Not once. And what we'll recognize and what we'll say is salvation belongs to the Lord. We all deserve death, but God in his grace and God in his mercy, in the words of Peter, is elected or chosen for some people to be saved. At the same point, in our Bibles, we are called to put our faith in Jesus. Not one time is sin ever credited to God. Every time sin is mentioned, it is the fault of the human, not of the Lord. God is not responsible for our sin. We are responsible for our sin. And so this is a difficult doctrine for several reasons. If we're honest, we don't like the doctrine of election because it means we're not in control. And in, in West Texas, typically what happens is we're okay with God being sovereign over life. We know that there's a plan. When something bad happens, we know God's got a plan for my life, except for when it comes to salvation. It's important to, to leave it in God's hands. And, and oftentimes this is difficult because it can make us feel like we're puppets or we're robots and we have no control over what we do. That God is just bored and so he's created us to kind of be this play for him to go and do and use us. Neither of those are biblically true. We're told that, that if we do not place our faith in Jesus, if we do not believe in Jesus, we will not be saved. We are called biblically to share the gospel with other people. All of those things go together. We are called to pray for the salvation of the lost. We are called to pray for people to be saved. We are called to share the gospel with other people. We're called to, to acknowledge, though, that it's actually God who gives the growth. We can plant and we can water, but we cannot make something grow. Only God can. This doctrine is difficult because it's where we have to admit as finite human beings that we don't fully understand God. That we 
hold to election and we can hold to free will and, and those two things are things that we, we hold in tension. What's best for us is to talk about them the way that the Bible talks about them, the way that God has revealed them to us and to hold them in tension. We'll never fully understand those things because God is God and we are not. Spurgeon says there are two metals that will only be melded, uh, welded together in the anvil that's sitting before the throne of God. So then in salvation, we celebrate God, not us. When somebody believes in Jesus, when they repent of their sin, we go, praise the Lord. Because it's God who gives the growth, it's not us. We also see that Peter calls these people not just elect or chosen, but they're exiles. Again, Peter's tying these people to the Old Testament people of God. We walked through Genesis, right? This should be, we should be scholars on this by now. The only land that they owned in, in Exodus, but Abraham was in exile his whole life. He owned one land, and that's where they buried people. He owned the cemetery. What a great plot of land. We see them being removed from there. They're stuck in Egypt when we left them, and then we just kind of left them. We'll figure it out later if we want to go back into Exodus. But you've got this family that's exiled. They don't really have a home. You're kind of traveling through. There's no place for you to stay. And what Peter is saying to these people that he's writing to is you're exiles, which would sound really weird. Some of these people, their families have been homesteading in this modern-day Turkey area for thousands of years. This is going to feel odd that Peter's like, you're in exile where your families put down roots for hundreds of thousands of years or however long they've been there. You're strangers. You're not home. Church membership can be helpful in, in us understanding this. God, God doesn't save uh, individuals for individuals to continue living in the world by themselves. He saves the people to himself and to each other. And so the people gather regularly. We partake in the Lord's Supper and baptism. We love one another. We care for one another. We disciple one another. We call one another to join us. That's what the church is. And the Bible talks about two different kinds of churches. We have the universal church, which is all believers throughout all time, all the way back to even the future when the last person is saved. And then we have the local church, which is a particular set of believers that covenant together with one another to help each other grow in the, uh, in the Lord and to be a gospel light in their community. And so in a real sense, what local churches look like are embassies. We have this universal church, this kingdom of God that, that's not here with us fully, right? It's been inaugurated, but it's not all the way here yet. And so we have these churches, these embassies that God has planted and that he's scattered across the world that are these lights that say we're actually not members of the nation that we live in. We're citizens of a different nation that is to come. We're not, like we're, we're Americans, but primarily if we're believers, we're Christians. We belong to a different kingdom. When I was at OBU, it's Oklahoma Baptist University, the real OBU, the Rockies were a good baseball team, and that's the last time they've been a good baseball team. It was a long time ago. And they were so good, and I was so excited, and nobody at OBU cared, not a soul. It's Oklahoma. They care about very little. And so I felt alone. I wanted to talk Rockies baseball, but nobody else wanted to talk about the Rockies baseball until I met Jared and Austin, two friends that I learned were from Colorado. 
And what we began doing is we began talking about the Rockies, talking about baseball. We had jokes with one another. We would talk about our players and non-players who anybody outside of the Rockies circle has no idea who they are because it's the Rockies and they're just basically a glorified AAA team. Yeah, thanks, Vince. You know, go. My friendship with Jared and Austin was built upon this mutual love for the Rockies, even though we were in Oklahoma. We had this common bond that we could talk about, this thing that was distant, that was away from us, yet it brought us together in a foreign country. <laughs> the comfort of having people to talk to those things about, the comfort of having, that's what the local church is meant to do. We are brought together, brothers and sisters, by nothing more and nothing less than Jesus Christ. There are unbelievers in the world, right? That's what is out there that, that look and talk and feel like us, that have good morals and that have good values, but our morals and values are not the gospel, and that's not what brings us together. We're exiles, and it's vital for us, to, for us to gather, to hear the word proclaimed. It's vital for us to submit ourselves under the word of God together. It's vital for us to commit to helping one another grow in King Jesus. It's, it's vital for us to invite others into this citizenship, to this embassy that we hold together here that's pointing towards a different kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, because we're exiles. This isn't our home, and we can't get comfortable here. We will never and we should never fit in with the world. And if we do, we need to reevaluate our life and what matters for us. Peter is writing this letter to people who are in a Roman providence who are going to be heavily persecuted. They're not, like I said, it's not this national persecution that's raining down on them, but there are social pressures that are beginning to mount. It's not illegal to be a Christian. However, it's pointing in that direction. It's beginning to stick out for them. It's going to be difficult to be a Christian. There's those pressures building. And they're saying things like, it's odd for you to worship a God who died. And then you take a bath and you say you're dying with him. That's what they would call baptism, I would imagine. If we step back and just look, when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is we symbolically eat his flesh and drink his blood. That sounds really weird to a lost and dying world. I imagine if, if we're in Rome and we tell our neighbors this is what we believe in, their kids are not coming to our house to play anymore. In the Nero, lights Rome on fire in 64 AD and this persecution of Christians spreads. Many of the people who read this letter from Peter die. They're killed. And so what Peter is telling them as he addresses this letter is you're these elect exiles dispersed abroad is what he's saying is none of this is beyond God. You're not supposed to be at home here. It's going to sound weird to the world. Don't be surprised when this persecution comes. You're going to ruffle some feathers because what you believe is fundamentally different and against what other people believe. And what other people believe is going to change throughout time. Sometimes they're going to be okay. Sometimes they're not going to be okay with you. Over the course of history of the world, this is going to ebb and flow. But what we believe doesn't change because God does not change. 
So if we're living for the Lord, if we are living as God would have us to live, if we are exiles who believe in this kingdom that is to come, then we do not fit in with the world. It doesn't matter what the world changes to be like or not like. And then he says they're dispersed, or maybe yours says diaspora or dispersion. This just means scattered. And it's Peter again tying these Gentile people primarily Gentile churches in with this Jewish identity that it was developed in the Old Testament. When the Jewish people were exiled in the Old Testament, they were dispersed, they were scattered, and that's the way they were talked about. So Peter's looking at these Christians that he knows are going to be persecuted, and he's telling them what they need to know. And then in verse 2, we see this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I just want to stop there. Let's just unpack that one. Again, it's this theme with Peter at the start of the book. He's tying these churches in with the Old Testament people of God. Ephesians 1, 4, I want to read this to you. says this, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. What we learn in this passage and what we learn in Ephesians is that God's plan for salvation was not a backup plan. The gospel was not God saying, I made a mistake when I created human beings and let sin enter into the world. Now I've got to fix it. This was always the plan for God. It's not plan B. It's plan A. It's not like Adam and Eve were in the garden and this snake slithers in when God has a back turned and he just didn't see him. It's not like God is like, man, that sin really impacted them a lot more than I thought it would. Think about this. God is never surprised. And so our sinful nature that we inherit from Adam and Eve because of the sin that they had is is us understanding that this was God's plan from the beginning for our salvation, that the Bible is about God revealing himself to us. All of life, all of eternity is heading towards this final destination where God is the one who gets the most glory. We, you and I, are background actors at best in the story. So in God's foreknowledge, he establishes this plan of salvation that in God's, involves God saving people who do not deserve salvation, people who are not good enough, people who are not smart enough, people who are not nice enough, people who are not talented enough, who are not created enough. By all of the world's standards, those that the Lord saves are not worth being saved. And God says, that's why I'm going to save them, because it gives me glory and not them. God's glory is most displayed in us when we're the most humble people around. We don't deserve salvation, but God, by his grace, lavishes it on us. God's so great that those who in the world who look at those who are Christians should go, you're the ones that God saved? Like, I see why you put your faith in Jesus, because nothing else is going to pan out for you in life. what hope do you have besides Jesus? And our response should be none. We only have one hope, and we have Jesus, and he is enough. So sometimes when people read this passage or those words, they they read foreknowledge, and they think it's something like God looks down the the corridor of time, and he sees those who will repent or won't repent, um, and so those are who are elected. And it's it's, it's a way that we can do that, but but I struggle with that because we're not saved by our works. Paul tells us that in Ephesians and in the rest of the New Testament. 
that God is God and God saves and, and, and we respond. One commentator helped me when he was talking about this. Is he said, if we think of foreknowledge, we kind of have this struggle. But if we think of this foreloved, it kind of feels a little bit better for us. That God foreloved us. See, know there is more than just like I know about you or I know somebody. It's to intimately know someone. That before we were a twinkle in our parents' eyes, God loved us. Again, this passage isn't meant to make us feel uh, like like life's struggling and like there's it's not it's not meant to wreck our lives. What it's meant to do is to understand that these people who are about to be heavily persecuted in the Lord need some hope and they need something to anchor down into. And what Paul is saying, what Peter is saying, is this God who loves you, who foreknew you, who foreloved you, knows all of these things that are about to happen to you. So just cling to Him. Ultimately, he's in control. And when circumstances are hard, you cling to God. It's October. October 31st, 1517 is when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. If we're Protestant, we celebrate this. If we're Catholic, we do not like it. You may not know history, but there's a story that comes with the Reformation that kind of helps us see why Peter's using this language for persecution. There's a man named John Huss. Anybody heard of John Huss? Perfect. 100 years before Luther, uh, so 1417, uh, John Huss was preaching that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And because that's what he was proclaiming, he was killed. And so he was put on a stake, and they lit the fire to burn him. And the story goes that John Huss, Huss means goose. I think I like John Huss. Uh, John Huss, as the fire is being lit and his body is being killed, screams, you may have cooked the goose, Huss, but a swan will come in a hundred years. In a hundred years, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg and begins the Protestant Reformation. I imagine that John Huss's wife, that his family, that maybe even he, in the midst of that heavy persecution, might have doubted what was going on. Maybe they were just like, if you want to teach those things, that's fine, but just don't do it publicly. Tone it down a little bit. They're going to kill you if you keep saying these things, and he refused. William Tyndale, you know the story of William Tyndale, was killed because he translated the Bible into English. I imagine Tyndall's wife and family might have worried, like, what is going on? Why is this happening to you? Why is God taking you from us in the midst of all of this suffering? And yet what we see with both of their stories, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their persecution that cost them their life, there's this trail that comes from them. The gospel is proclaimed, and untold, untold thousands of people are believers because of the martyrdom that they face. There's no telling how many people that Peter's writing to who lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel, how their story was spread. Brothers and sisters, there's a chance that our salvation could be traced back to those people. That because they died and they didn't give up on the gospel, somebody else believed and they passed the gospel down and passed the gospel down and passed the gospel down until it got to us. we glorify God that's what Peter's saying 
we glorify God because he's the only one who's worth glorifying. And all of this is not God's secondary plan. All of this is not happening behind God's back, and he's just going to make it right later. This is all how God is most glorified. So, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctification is, is present tense. Did you catch that foreknowledge is past tense? Peter's very clever. Past tense. Present tense, sanctifying work. So justification and sanctification are two words that we need to understand. Justification, the moment we're saved, we've been justified. It's a legal term. So imagine standing in a courtroom and God the judge is sitting up and you sit down and you have to plead your case to God. Why should I be saved? Why should I be spared the punishment that is to come? And we plead our case to God. And if we're Christians, our case is we deserve death. There's nothing that I've done that would make me not deserve this death. I don't deserve to be saved. I deserve the the punishment. I deserve your wrath to be poured out on me. I'm not worthy. I've sinned against you. I've sinned in the deepest recesses of my heart. My sin controls so much about me. It controls everything. I'm not worthy to be saved. But Jesus took my punishment. That's our plea. I'm not worthy, but Jesus is. And his righteousness clothes me. I'm not righteous, but Jesus is righteous. And I believe in Jesus. I have faith in him, and I need his grace. And his grace is received, given to me through my faith in him. And so the judge, God, takes his gavel, and he beats it down, and he says, you're innocent, you're justified, go about your life. It's the moment of salvation for us. And so then we exit the courtroom, and we have to figure out what we're going to do with the rest of our life. That's sanctification. And the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit here. We walk out of the courtroom free, and the Holy Spirit dwells within tabernacles is the word. It's like God is teaching us something. Dwells within inside of us. So that moment of justification, we walk out and we're a different person than we walked into the courtroom. And now we walk out and the world looks different and it feels different. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. But we're also still not sinless. Has anybody figured out how to stop sinning? And so we wrestle and we struggle. We have this conviction because God dwells in us if we're believers. The Holy Spirit is within us if we're believers. And what the Holy Spirit begins to do is he reveals things through us through his word, which he also wrote. I just want to say this point for two cents. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of scripture, and God does not lie. So if the Bible says something and our hearts tell us something else, our hearts are wrong, not the scriptures. I have a friend who says the Holy Spirit is a spirit, but he's not the only one, and we should be careful. Two cents. There you go. So slowly, over the course of time, through our experiences, through our interactions, through how life takes us and what we have with life, the Spirit begins to sanctify us to make us more holy. Slowly but certainly. So we can look at a year back on our life, and if we're believers, we ought to be more holy now than we were a year ago. We can look at five years back and say we ought to be more holy now than we were five years ago. And sometimes it's a really flat line. Sometimes it's steep. It's a, prog- it's a process. It's a progress. There are seasons of life that come and they go, but the Spirit doesn't leave. Again, P 
Peter is writing to Christians who are going to be persecuted and put to death. And so what he's saying is this, God is dwelling in you in the midst of all of this, and, and believe it or not, it's for your good and it's for God's glory. That you'll be made more holy through this, so exalt God. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. You catch what Peter's doing. Past foreknowledge, present sanctification, future, to be obedient, to be sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. Salvation frees us, but it does not free us to do whatever we want. When God saves us, we are freed from the shackles of sin, although it still has this hold, this grip on us, and we're being just, uh, sanctified in the Holy Spirit so that it becomes less and less, but it frees us to obey Jesus. We humble ourselves, we repent, we turn to Jesus in faith. He lavishes the grace, he lavishes that salvation, but he doesn't set us free to keep living, right? And he doesn't set us free so that we can do whatever we want, right? Sometimes there's people who are like, I have grace, I have my get out of hell free card, I'm going to go live my life however I want to live, and then when I die, I'll flash that card before God and he'll have to let me into heaven like it's some cosmic loophole that he's figured out. I don't think it will be good for them on that day. Salvation is not a coupon without an expiration date. It's a fundamental change about who we are and how we approach life. And so we're saved to obey God. We're saved to follow God's will. Think about the original audience here. If they're going to obey Jesus, likely it will end in their death. And Peter doesn't bat an eye at it. He says, yes. And it's worth it. They're already feeling social pressures, but more intense persecution, more intense suffering is coming. And Peter says, you obey Jesus in the midst of it. And then we see this, this line that, again, Peter is, is drawing these churches with these Gentiles into this Old Testament people of God. He's, he's pulling them in, saying, you are the, the people of God. Now you've been grafted into this family, and if you notice what he says is the people have been sprinkled with the blood, not the altar. When we think of Old Testament sacrifices, we would like they would sacrifice an animal, and then they would take it, and they would sprinkle it on the altar to atone for their sins, but there's a few passages in the Old Testament where they would take the blood, they would sprinkle it on the altar, and then they would turn around, and they would sprinkle it on the people. And the main one that, that Peter is referencing here is on Mount Sinai. When Moses is given the law by God and Moses takes the law to the people and the people commit and they say, we will obey God's words. We commit, we covenant to follow after the law of God. And so Moses reads it, they pray, they worship, and then Moses sprinkles them with the blood from the altar. It symbolizes death is required for obedience. It symbolizes to him that if you break the law, death is what's going to be required. It sounds odd to us with our modern ears. I'm not bringing a goat up here. We're not doing that here. But it's important for us to see what, what Paul, uh, Peter is saying to these people who are going to have their blood spilled for Christ. That you've been sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. That you've been saved, not because you're great, not because you're awesome, not because you deserve it, but because God is gracious and God is merciful. That we're under a new covenant. 
That's the language of the new covenant. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's the blood of Christ. This passage also reveals to us another nice and neat and easy doctrine for us to dive into, the Trinity. I thought that would get more. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible. But it's helpful for us to understand the nature of God and how the Bible talks about God. So God is one God in three persons. Any language outside of that is dangerous and we need to watch out for. This has been a doctrine of Scripture that has been attacked over the years multiple, multiple times. That's the way Christians have talked about God for thousands of years, but there seems to be some branches of Christianity now that are changing that language, and we ought to be very cautious about what they're doing. One God, three persons, is extremely intentional, and it's important for us to understand this is a primary doctrine. This is one that we'll fight over. This is one that we'll stand on. If we can't get right who God is, then what's the point in us gathering? God's revealed himself to us. So if we get this wrong, then we're in danger of worshiping a false god. It's been abused more lately than any other primary doctrine that I've seen in my own life. So, so one God. We don't have three gods. We have one God. The Bible is very clear about this. However, God reveals himself to us in three persons. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is completely and fully God. So the Father is 100% God, not 33% and not a third. The Son is 100% God, not 33%, not a third. The Holy Spirit is 100% God, not 33%, not a third. Yet we see that each person of the Trinity has a distinct role that they play and how they relate to the world. We saw it in this passage that God sets apart this plan, this foreknowledge for salvation, that the, the Son does the work of salvation. He's the one who comes to us in the flesh and dies on the cross. And we see that it's the Spirit who applies salvation to our hearts, to our souls. So the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Father. They're each unique, their own person within the Trinity, yet they're all 100% God together. It gets confusing because it's God and we're not. So over the course of the years, we've tried to come up with these illustrations that help us understand God, but what they really do is they help us understand heresies. It's, it's not true when we understand. I'm going to walk through a few. I don't, uh, I've used them in the past. I'm not saying I'm perfect with these. I just want to point out why they're, they're wrong to kind of help us understand God. Sometimes we'll say God is like water, where he's ice, liquid, and gas, three forms of water, but it's all still water. The problem with that is ice and gas don't mix together. They're all God, 100%, and they're each their own. Like they're, It doesn't do, the, the, the illustration doesn't work. Sometimes we'll say God is like an apple, where you have the core, the crust, and then, I don't know, what the middle part, the meat. Or we'll say a similar one, like God is like an egg, where there's a shell, and then you have the yolk, and then you have the, the white of the, the egg. But the problem is the Father is fully God. An eggshell is not fully an egg. The sun is fully God, and the core is not fully an apple. Those illustrations fail. They don't point us to the, the full picture of who God is. The helpful way I've learned to think and to talk about the Trinity is it's a dance. Where God the Father spends his time glorifying the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
and the Son and the Holy the Son spends his time glorifying the Spirit and the Father, and the Spirit spends his time glorifying the Father and the Son, so that they're just constantly in this, this dance of the Trinity where they're each exalting each other, each distinct while each maintaining that there's one God with three persons, three members of the Trinity. This may seem like it's just pie-in-the-sky theology. It's not going to impact my everyday life, but that's not true. People talk about God all the time, even believers. There's a whole group of people who only have their identity and they do not believe in God. That's what atheists are. They define themselves as we don't believe in God. So what they don't believe in is what most classifies them as a belief group. Yet often when people talk about God, it's the Trinity that's misunderstood. How God is relating to the world. There's, there's a large movement that's subtly growing under more charismatic branches of Christianity that believes that God is not one God in three persons, but that he's one God in three modes. It's called modalism. That God in the Old Testament came as the Father, and then the Father rescinded and, and he came as the Son, and then the Son left and it comes as the Holy Spirit now. It may not seem like a big deal, but it makes all the difference in the world if we're worshiping a false god. We either worship the God of the Bible, the true and living God, or we don't. We can think about creation where Father, Son, and Spirit are all present in creation. God is speaking. The Spirit is ascending over the waters, and the Son is involved in the acts of creation. We can look at Jesus' baptism where Jesus is dunked underwater. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, hovering over the waters like it's a new creation, and the Father speaks. We can look at the Great Commission where we're baptized not into the name of Jesus, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian. There. We can look at this passage right here where all three members of the Trinity, all three Persons of the Trinity are brought about. It's an important statement that these exiles that are looming in the face of persecution have a triune God who knows them, who grows them, and who keeps them. Nothing can separate them from this God, not even death. Nothing in life is worth them recanting of God and living a longer life. It's better for them to hold to the truth of the gospel, to hold to the truth of God and have their physical life cut short than to recant God and to live longer. That's the glory of the Trinity that we have to understand. This is who God is. That this God from eternity past is not bored. There's this relationship within the Trinity of God. That we're not created because God just was twiddling his thumbs trying to figure out what to do. That you and I and every other human being, whether they believe it or not, are created to glorify God. So maybe you're here this morning. We come to this passage just at the very beginning of, of Peter, and the Lord begins poking and prodding at things in our hearts. Maybe we look and we say, our whole life I've, I've been going to church, um, and, and I, I go to church because I'm a good West Texas person, and that's what good West Texans do. We, we don't cuss in front of our moms. We mind our P's and Q's. We work hard. We work diligently, and we go to church when there's nothing else that's going on. But maybe what we see as we read through the Bible and we begin opening up these passages is that there's so much more to the gospel than just this, I have to go do these things. Maybe what you're seeing is that the glory of God hasn't truly pierced your heart. You're, 
good, you're moral, but when Peter says to the elect exile scattered across the world, that seems like a little much. When Peter says you need to obey Christ even though it's going to cut your life off short, that seems odd. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is so much more than not going to hell. It's not less than that. There's so much more. Jesus takes our punishment, the wrath of God for us on the cross, and he imputes to us, he credits us with his righteousness. So the Christian life is so much more than begrudgingly obeying God and giving everything up that we think is fun in life. No, Jesus is better. Look at your salvation. Is it genuine? And what we'll see in 1 Peter is it's not something that you can lose. You can't lose your salvation. You can't sin your way out of God's grace. You may try. However, you can believe you're saved when you're not actually saved. Maybe if you, you know you're a believer, but it's just been a dry season with the Lord. It doesn't seem like God's been doing much in your life. On that line of sanctification, it's, it's flat or maybe even a little bit down. Maybe look at your life and see are there some subtle things that are controlling me. Am I spending time with the Lord? Am I diligently praying? Am I diligently reading his word? Am I coming to church to worship with other believers? And maybe for you what God is doing is revealing a deeper understanding of who God is that he saves by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Whatever is happening, let's worship God this morning. worship God, we're not demanding God do what we want God to do. When we worship God, we bask in the glory of who God is and how God has chosen to save and to glorify himself. We don't earn our salvation. We have nothing to be prideful in. So we gather together as a church, not as all these people who have life together, but as these people that God has saved, because if God doesn't save us, we have no hope. Let's worship the Lord. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we do get to gather together, that we do get to worship you, that we do get to hear your word preached and hear your word proclaimed, that we do have a hope. I thank you for Jesus, for the finished work on the cross. God, I thank you that we can't fully know you, that you're too much for us. You're so far beyond us that our finite human minds just can't fully grasp how you can be one God and three persons and how you can choose to save some God and that we have to put our faith in you and how those things wrestle and hang together. God, I pray that what those do was they wouldn't stir within us uh, distress, that they wouldn't stir within us this desire that we would fight and just settle down with one thing. Rather, God, what they would do is they would stir within us a desire to glorify you because you're beyond us. You are the author of salvation. You are the sanctifier of our lives. You are the one who calls us to be obedient and you covenant with us. Help us to worship you this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Isaac's in a